Please take your Bible and turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. This is what Holy Scripture says. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You see these tents all around you? Well, it was over a month ago that a few of us gathered here on a Saturday morning to put them up together. We received the tents, not like this, but in boxes, and there were many pieces inside, and it was not that intuitive. Many sides, cylinders, bolts, and screws... The cylinder one had to be with cylinder three, I believe, and then longer screws were at the bottom, the bigger, the smaller ones at the top. It was a bit complicated, but we only knew that because of the instructions. The instruction manual was so useful, it would not have been possible without it. We needed guidance, and that's what instructions are for, and they are necessary to accomplish many things in life. Today, we will be looking at the best set of instructions and guidance in the most important of subjects, the confession of sin. When it comes to sin, we often don't deal with it as we should. And we often put things into our own hands. We might think we can eliminate our sin by doing a lot of good deeds or by living a morally good life, but that will only lead to futility and further disappointment. That's what the world teaches but those are all the wrong instructions. The world will not help us, the world will not help you deal with your sin. We must turn to God. He has given us instructions on how to deal with sin. And this is what we have today in Psalm 32. Now, I can't imagine putting up one of these tents on my own or even without the instructions. I mean, I could try to put something together, fumble around, but I don't think any of you would want to sit under my tent on a Sunday morning. And if I was to use the instructions, I would want to follow them carefully. 
and it would be foolish of me to want to alter them in any way. Well, the same can be said for us when we look at Psalm 32. These are instructions coming straight from the mouth of God. And so there is no need to add or remove anything. This is the final copy. There's no peer review or edits needed. And these instructions, they are to be used. They are not to be folded up into paper airplanes. Instructions are crucial. And that's what happened that day when we put up these tents on that Saturday. Our brother Roman, he had the instructions in hand and we were following him. We were following his lead. But what use would they have been if he had not told us exactly what to do? We would have been directionless with all the different pieces before us. Indeed, we would have been stuck with a pile of metal. And the same goes with these instructions in Psalm 32. For we all lay under the same predicament and are in need of divine guidance, not on how to deal with a pile of metal, but a pile of sins. So Psalm 32 begins with the words, a mascal of David. A mascal, usually translated as the giving of instruction. And it's written by David. So it's a psalm of instruction and David is the author. Now, a few of the Davidic psalms that we have actually add some information at the top of of the title, in the title section, connecting the psalm to a specific event in David's life such as David flees from Saul into a cave, or the Philistines sees David in Gath, or David in the desert of Judah. Psalm 32, on the other hand, lacks such information. However, I am inclined to believe, along with many others, that Psalm 32 shall probably be interpreted alongside Psalm 51, which is David's great psalm of repentance, in connection, of course, with the sin with Bathsheba. And you know the story. David, he sins in committing adultery with Bathsheba and then manipulates the battle to have her husband Uriah, who was a soldier, killed. David, he then tries to hide his sin for for some time. But when the prophet Nathan comes to him and exposes the sin, David, he confessed it. And Psalm 51 is the immediate statement of that confession. And what's interesting is that at the end of Psalm 51, David says in Psalm 51, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So that teaching or instruction that David vows to do may be the mascal that we have here before us in Psalm 32. In David's desire to teach transgressors their ways and to call sinners to return to God, David has given us a manual, a guidebook for the guilty instructions we can follow as well as give to others. Now, before we look into this guidebook, we need to remember that Israelites 3,000 years ago didn't write instructions the same, we do, the, same, the same way we do today. Step one, step two, step three. And that's because instructions were written poetically, not in the linear style of writing that we are accustomed to. They did so for many reasons to facilitate memorization, or to draw out a conclusion by seeing two verses side by side. So picture a pyramid with me, made up of various flat platforms or steps that eventually meet in a point at the top. Well, Psalm 32 is a bit like that. It's like a pyramid. We will be looking at these instructions in that way, where verse 6 is at the top, it's the pinnacle, it's the summit, and then the verses surrounding verse 6 will make up the other platforms of our pyramid. 
So again, verse six, pinnacle, the summit, the top, and then the other verses grouped together, making up the other platforms. And you should see that in your sermon outlines. So let's start now at the heart of the psalm, the very core, verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. So this is the main teaching. It's like the first page in your instruction manual. It gives you the picture of the final result, the final product. So this is the instruction, the main message of David's manual for guilty sinners. Notice that it's not doing good works. No, it's offering prayer. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer. What kind of prayer? Well, we already saw from the context that it's a prayer of confession. So the Lord says through David, confess your sins. It's a prayer of confession. Confess your sins. Do it freely. All of you, do it now. And why do it, you may ask? Well, he says that there is a time when God may be found. It's so similar to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So there's a sense of realistic urgency in the psalmist's call to prayer. And while it is true that we are living in a day when, as Paul says in Acts 17, God is not far from each one of us, may we not presume upon his grace. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Implied in David's teaching is the sobering reality that God's patience towards sin and the opportunity to confess sin will not last forever. David writes, Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The rush of great waters. David is probably thinking about the waters of God's judgment, like the water judgment upon earth in the days of Noah. Dear friend, the day of judgment is coming, and you do not want to be washed away. On that day, it will be too late to repent. You will find no forgiveness. Do not wait until then. God himself encourages you to come to him and to confess your sin. David says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer. Everyone who is godly. So these instructions are addressed to the godly. That's the audience. If you're reading through this guidebook and you find yourself responding in confession, confession, you are part of the godly. However, if you find that you are cherishing your sin to the point that you cannot confess your sin, that will be good reason to believe that you are not a part of the godly, and nothing short of destruction will be your lot. Indeed, you will be stuck with your pile of sins. So verse 6, again, is the main point of our instruction manual. Confess your sins. And now David will expand on this point by providing a caution a caution for those living with unconfessed sin, provision for those who confess sin, and the result of confession. Caution, provision, result, which helpfully spells out the acronym CPR. Spiritual CPR. How fitting. These instructions are indeed catered for us, living in an emergency. An emergency because of the sickness of sin. As is the case in any instruction manual, we have a caution, like the ones found in the inside cover of your Lego instructions. The warning can go like, don't eat the Lego blocks, or don't put the Lego blocks in the fire, and so on. 
This is one of our platforms in the pyramid. Again, verse 6 is the summit, and here we have verses 3 and 4 and verses 8 and 9 forming the caution platform of the pyramid. So look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is drawing from his own personal experience to encourage confession of sin. Yes, he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, and yes, he confessed his sin. But do you know how long he kept silent? A year. For a whole year, he kept silent about his sin. He refused to acknowledge his sin, to acknowledge that he had done any wrong. He hid his sin, covering it up. Like when you break your mom's favorite vase, and you think you can put it together with super glue, and that she won't notice. Well, you can't fool her. While David must have been really good at hiding his sin, because he presumably fooled everyone, he kept silent for a whole year. Today, he would be the one coming to church every Sunday. He would be the one serving on host team, reading his Bible every day. But inwardly, he was denying his sin. And for that, he paid a price. David here, he uses several figures of speech to illustrate the inward turmoil and agony he went through as a result of his refusal to confess sin. You could even say that unconfessed sin led to God's judgment, to divine disapproval. It says, your hand was heavy upon me. So God's discipline weighed heavily on David. And this went on all day long, day and night, for a whole year. It says, my bones wasted away. This is a common figure of speech for suffering in the Psalms. My bones, aching joints, like a bad case of arthritis. And the heaviness was like a burden that couldn't be set down, no matter how tired he became. And lastly, it was like a hot, dry Mediterranean climate that dried him up. The language here is most likely metaphorical, but nonetheless, these are vivid pictures of the turmoil and agony that David experienced due to his unconfessed sin. Another picture that we are given is found in verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. It will not stay near, or it will not stay near you. So this is God speaking here through David. And he is appealing to the image of two common beasts of burden to make his point. That is, an animal that must be controlled and limited by the use of bit and bridle. It's a pointed illustration of folly and stubbornness. Now, may this not be said of us, that we be like brute beasts with no understanding, where God needs to constantly discipline us through curbs and restraints. These are the warnings we find in our instruction manual. These pictures aptly describe the condition of the one who tries to ignore his or her sin. And we best make sure we take heed. God cannot ignore sin. He will not. He will bring pressure upon us, often the most acute, until we confess our sin. But there's a glimmer of hope. The negative imagery of forced control in verse 9 is contrasted with the positive promise of the Lord's direction. Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
This is the promise of the one who is confessing his sin and desires to live a godly life. The Lord delights to guide him in the way of holiness. God wants to instruct and teach you in the way you should go and to counsel you with his eye upon you, which speaks of God's vigilance and intimate care. He promises to watch over you. So let's get back to David. How did David finally get to a place of confession? Well, it came by way of confrontation. The prophet Nathan pointed his finger directly at David and said, you are the man. So let me ask you today, are you the man? Are you the woman? Are you guilty of sin by doing what you should not have done and by not doing what you should have done? You can be sure that you will be miserable until you follow these instructions. Do not ignore or hide your sin any longer. Cease your cover-up. If you are part of the godly, confess your sin. Listen to Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So that's the caution. Now we turn to another platform in our pyramid, provision. Provision for those who confess their sin. This platform includes verses 5 and 7. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice first the words that are used here to describe sin. This is instructive for us because we often have a shallow vocabulary when it comes to sin. First, we have sin, which means coming short or falling short of a mark. In those days, the term was used in archery and describing a person who shoots at a target, but he misses his mark. The target in our case is God's law, and sin is described by the failure of measuring up to it. Secondly, we have iniquity, sin and now iniquity, which means corrupt, twisted, or crooked. Just as sin was a word describing our relationship to the law, here iniquity now describes sin in relationship to us. That is, to the, degree, to the degree that we indulge in sin, we too become corrupt and twisted. And lastly, we have transgression, which literally means a departure or going away. In the case of David, not only does his sin hurt other people, but it is at, is it, but it is at its root rebellion against God. That is why Psalm 51 contains the words, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So yes, David had sinned against others, against Uriah, against uh, the nation of Israel, but ultimately it was sin against a holy God. It was cosmic treason, as the late R.C. Sproul would have said. These three terms were probably chosen to cover the scope of sin and all its diverse aspects. Sin in relationship to the law, iniquity in relationship to ourselves, and transgression in relationship to God. These are good words for us to know and to use, especially as we are all guilty of each one. These three words for sin are then associated with three verbs of confession. Listen to it again. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. 
we have acknowledge, meaning to make known, to not cover up, as in not hiding anymore, and confess, which literally means to throw up into the air. David teaches us that deep repentance demands a full and complete confession, one that is brutally honest. Here, David, he does not hold back in any way. We have already looked at the results of covering sin, nothing but turmoil and agony. But here in verse 5, we have a full and complete confession, bringing a full and complete forgiveness. David, he confessed it all. God forgave it all. We find similar language in 2 Samuel 12, where David finally acknowledges his sin, which is quickly followed by the prophet expressing God's mercy and his provision to forgive David his sin. But let's be careful here, because that doesn't mean that there was no consequence for David's sin. No, on the contrary, the consequence was painful. It was the death of his son. Now, this is important. We cannot overlook this. Let us never forget, friends, that there are consequences for our sin. Is this not what Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 7? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Sin has great consequences. And for David, it's the tragic death of his child. But that is actually not punishment for his sin. David, he deserved to die on two counts, adultery, murder. That's the penalty for each one. But David does not die. Nathan makes it clear. The prophet says that his sin has been taken away. The punishment he deserved is turned aside. Yes, there is a sad consequence, but the sin was not brought up again and was forgiven in full. Now, what is really striking is how God forgave David's sin once he confessed it. He forgave it completely. He forgave it immediately. It was now brought up again. How, dr how drastically different that is to when people wrong us and how we treat them. We hold grudges against them. We celebrate when they suffer. We don't let them forget what they did to us. But not so with our God. Hebrews 8 verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What a wonderful provision this is for the sinner. But first, we must confess our sin. Dear friend, have you done so? Have you confessed your sin? No one can confess your sins for you. Your parents cannot confess your sin. Your pastor cannot confess your sin. You must do it. You must say to yourself, as I was with David, I will, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And as you confess them, trust and thank God for the forgiveness he has promised. Remember that by the mercy of God, your sin is forgiven by the blood of Jesus. He has shed his precious blood in suffering the punishment that sinners like you and me deserve. The sprinkling of an animal's lifeblood in the days of David did not have the power to forgive, but only symbolized the provision yet to be made for forgiveness through the lifeblood of Christ. Hebrews 9, 12-14 states, He, that is Jesus, 
entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And this provision and experience of forgiveness encourages the godly to find their refuge in the Lord. Look at verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. How is David able to say this? Well, he has just reflected on the power of God's grace to forgive sin. So he is confident, confident that God can also provide refuge from any earthly trouble. And isn't that what Paul says in Romans 8, 32? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Since God has met our greatest need, namely in forgiving us our sins, we can certainly trust that he will provide for all the lesser needs that we have. In other words, if we can trust that he will deal with our sin, we can certainly trust him in everything else. This is great encouragement for the godly to continue to trust in God and to hide in him. Before confession, God's hand weighed heavily on the sinner, but now that same hand hides the sinner. You are a hiding place for me, David says. You preserve me from trouble. A hiding place and protection from the assaults of the enemy, as well as his many accusations. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So again, the question must be asked. Why would you hide your sin if you could be hiding in God? The godly, they confess their sin and they find their refuge in him. The last part of this verse is interesting. The psalmist says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Who's, who's speaking here? We know it's David. Who is he? He's the king, the king of Israel. Can you start picturing it now? It's like a victorious king returning from war. And the streets are lined with the citizens of the kingdom. And all you hear are shouts of joy and deliverance. Here in this verse, we're not David. We're not the king. We don't rule over Israel. In fact, this is ultimately pointing to Jesus, the king of kings, who laid aside his royal robes and stooped down into this creation. And he came to establish a kingdom that was not of this world. But entrance into this kingdom is only made possible for the sacrificial death of the king. And of course, all this is true and good news for you and me today because the King, Jesus Christ, is no longer dead. He is risen. Our King has been delivered from death. Now, when a King is delivered in battle, his deliverance also means the safety of the people of the country. In the same way, Jesus, our King, has been delivered from death, thus securing the salvation of his people. Jesus was raised for our justification, Paul says in Romans chapter 4. So who are the worshipers here in verse 7 of Psalm 32? The ones surrounding the king with shouts of deliverance. That's us, the church, the godly. Because our king, Jesus, the Christ, has been raised. Our hearts are glad. 
It's the most triumphal of entries, for we have been rescued from sin and death. Now maybe you are here and you have joined us for the first time and you have yet to submit to this king. Well, I want to urge you today, I want to plead with you that you would repent, that you would turn away from your sins and you would find your refuge in him. You would put all your hope, all your trust in Jesus Christ, for he is the best of kings and able to save you to the uttermost, preserving you from your greatest trouble, your eternal destruction. So we have looked here at the agony that is found when sin is not confessed, and we have seen the provision of forgiveness that is found for those who confess their sin. This brings us now to the result of confession, our final platform. In this step of the pyramid, we have verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Whereas David spoke from experience in the other verses, here he speaks more generally, giving universal statements that we are to follow. We have reached the conclusion of our instruction manual. After following all the instructions, this is again where we find the the picture of the final product. How is your Lego set looking like? How is your Ikea bookshelf going to look like? Is it all going to measure up? Is Is it matching what I see here? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Blessedness. That is the final result. You don't have blessedness? You probably went wrong somewhere in the instructions. Kids, if your Star Wars Lego set looks more like a Barbie World playset, most likely you were not following the instructions carefully. For us, Psalm 32 is a guidebook for the guilty to confess their sins with blessedness as the end result. But what is blessedness exactly? It's a hard word to translate into English. This is because the Hebrew term is very rich. It refers to a state of well-being, but it also has an emotional component, feelings of joy and satisfaction. Perhaps then, truly happy or blissfully happy would best capture the idea of being blessed. Now notice that the three words for sin that we had in verse 5 reappear again here in verse 1 transgression, sin, iniquity, and they are matched by a second set of three words describing what God does with sin when it is confessed. He forgives it, covers it over, and refuses to count it against the sinner, with the result, as we just saw, being a state of felicity or blessedness beyond measure. So let's look at this beautiful trinity of words that are used to defeat the grossness found in the trinity of sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven, which means to be removed, carried away, or literally to be lifted off. We already saw that when sin is unconfessed, we bear it as a heavy, heavy burden. But when we confess it, forgiveness is God lifting it from our shoulders. Next, we have covered, whose sin is covered. This term comes from the imagery of atonement by which the sinner is reconciled to God 
by means of propitiation, meaning that God's wrath toward the sinner and his sin has been satisfied. No longer are they enemies, but friends. The sinner now has peace with God. And then we have does not count. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, which is what God does with sin in the negative. It describes what he does not do. It's a bookkeeping term. He does not count the sin against the sinner. It is undeserved favor where there ought to be retribution or punishment. Finally, at the end of the verse, the one who is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and whose sin is not counted against him is also one who is sincere, honest. He is free from deceit and hypocrisy. He does not take the forgiveness of God for granted, and he certainly does not continue in sin that grace may abound. Friends, what a joy it is to know of this blessedness. Transgressions forgiven, sin covered, and iniquity not counted against the sinner. And get this, this is David speaking. King David, 3,000 years ago. If the joy of forgiveness was a reality for Old Testament saints like him, how much more for us on this side of the cross? We who have tasted of God's forgiveness in Christ should be all the more rejoiceful and thankful and joyful. Verse 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, contrary to the wicked, who have many sorrows, the Lord surrounds those who trust in him with steadfast love. The godly experience the constancy of God's love and protection. And then in verse 11, the instruction manual concludes with an exhortation to rejoice. It's not a call for making a vain effort to be happy when one does not feel it. No, the godly, the righteous, and the upright in heart will rejoice for they are mindful of God's provision, his forgiveness, his guidance, his protection. Brothers and sisters, this happiness is not only a privilege, but our duty. Truly, we serve a gracious God since he makes joy a part of our obedience. And did you catch those titles? The godly are now called the righteous and the upright in heart. Is that you? Are you godly? Are you righteous? Are you upright in heart? Surely not, you say. You might think that they are special individuals who have merited those titles by sinless perfection. Well, if that's what you think, you have not read these instructions carefully. For they are addressed to men and women who have trusted in God and are willing to confess their sins to him. They are made godly, righteous, and upright in heart by God's forgiveness of their sins. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 reads, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what happens to all Christians. When we confess our sin, God removes it as far as the east is from the west and no longer remembers it against us. He will cast all our sins into into the depths of the sea. Let me ask you, do you know of this happiness, of this joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? If so, keep living in this manual, for the godly will persist in daily confession and constant experiences of joy.
In fact, you will never graduate beyond this manual, on this side of heaven. Look at King David. He's been walking with God for years, decades, and he still needs to confess his sin. This is a good reminder for us. Even if you have been a Christian for years, that doesn't mean you get to put these instructions aside or to put them in that box in your attic with all the other books you never plan to read again. No, friend, dust it off, take it up. This guidebook isn't only for the young in faith, but also for you. There are no age restrictions when it comes to the confession of sin. In the Christian's library, this instruction manual will not only be found in the hands of the children, but will be well-frequented by the adults as well. You know those books that are falling apart? <laughs> because you're, you're reading them all the time, you're taking it up. Yeah, well, this is what Psalm 32 should be like for us. So, Christian brother, Christian sister, young and old, everyone who is godly, confess your sin. These are the instructions. You have them before you. Heed the caution. Stop covering your sin and experience the covering of God when you confess it. Whatever your sin may be, do not ignore this guidebook. This is not an instruction manual exclusive for puny little McDonald's Happy Meal toys. No, this is a guidebook to help you deal with your sin, great or small. The size is not important. These instructions are all-encompassing, able to deal with whatever sin, whatever iniquity, whatever transgression found under the sun. This CPR is 100% effective. David committed murder to cover up adultery. You may have stolen money, assaulted your neighbor, disobeyed your parents. Whatever it may be, confess your sins. For if we confess our sins, he is indeed faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no more need to hide your sin, but rather return to the Lord and find your hiding place in him. Now, of course, when we confess sin, we are primarily confessing it to God. However, as we see modeled here by David, him giving us Psalm 32, giving us Psalm 51, there is a place for public confession, the very thing James tells us to do in James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Church, the forgiveness of God is for all sins, and the blessedness that follows forgiveness is the greatest of all joys. In fact, it was that joy that led David to pen this psalm. He was unashamed to teach other sinners how to confess their sins. And the same should be said of us. This is normal Christianity. It's a mark of one who has been forgiven much. They love much, especially those in the local church. For the stakes are high, eternally high. As it says in James 5.20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Look around you, Grace Fellowship Church. You have people, you have people around you caught in transgressions. And as Paul says in Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual should restore them in the spirit of gentleness. Here's our guidebook when it comes to the confession of sin. So, brothers and sisters, let's get to work. Let us be a church that takes sin seriously, that confesses it honestly, and that genuinely cares for the souls of our brothers and sisters. Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 says, Take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me pray. O oh Lord, have mercy on us. Thank you for these instructions. Help us to follow them for our joy, for the good of your church, and for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.